We're going to be in John chapter 7, so if you would turn there in your Bibles, we're presently going through the gospel according to John, and it has been so good. It's been so rich this time through. I've, I don't know how many times I've taught through John's gospel. Um, you know, you do this for a while, and you kind of do it over and over again, and I'll tell you... When dealing with the Word of God, it never gets old, and there's always something new that you you wonder why you never touched on that the other times that you taught it or studied it. But it says, verse 1, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. His brothers, therefore, said to him, Depart from here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you do, that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves, yourself excuse me, to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. And Father, we pray as we always do, that you would teach us. We pray, Lord, it's your word. You inspired John to write these things, to record these things for our benefit. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us. We pray that we'd be able to draw life application from your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we have mentioned here of Jesus' brothers, and we're going to touch on that in just a moment here, but but when I was reading over this uh, the past few days, I was thinking of a a verse that kind of came to mind, and that verse is out of Hebrews, and it's a verse that you all know, Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. And I was thinking of, uh, you know, first of all, the word sympathize, you know what that means. It means to have compassion for or to, uh, to be touched with one's feelings. And weaknesses, it, it speaks of not only a physical thing, but a mental thing. It speaks of feebleness of mind or body. And then tempted, you know what that is, to scrutinize, to entice, to discipline. And I was thinking of how I would never say that, um, that we feel what Jesus felt. I would never presume to say that. Uh, but I would say that Jesus felt what we feel. See, he was tempted in all ways as we're tempted, yet without sin. It's too bad that the last part of that verse isn't true of us, because we do sin. I was thinking of this, you know, Jesus, we read it, his brothers did not believe in him, and... You could imagine how difficult that would be. I know how hard it was for me when I first became a Christian and I contacted my parents and I thought, they're going to rejoice. I don't know what I was thinking. You know, I don't know why they would think that this was a good idea. They raised me 
in a you know Roman Catholic home, and from their perspective, it was like a slap in the face to say that I'm born again, you know. But um, but it was difficult. Fortunately, I was out of the house. I was married by the time you know I came to faith in Christ. But I'll tell you, every time I was with my parents, especially in those early days, it was very very difficult. But I think of Jesus. I mean, first of all, it would be difficult to have Jesus as your big brother, wouldn't it? I mean, he never does anything wrong. And, um, you know, I mean, that would be hard to live up to. But, but it, it would surely be difficult for Jesus in his incarnation, you know, to have members of his own family not believe in him. I think that many times when we look at the scriptures, and I say this quite often because I, I, I want us to break from this type of false teaching or, or thinking, it's not a teaching per se, but a thinking, that everyone in the Bible is somehow a supernatural character, like a superhuman, you know, and that they didn't feel the things that we feel, they didn't go through the things that we go through, you know. Of course, Jesus is the exception to the rule because Jesus is God in the flesh. But when you look at the scriptures, we know that Mary, even though an angel came to her and told her what her mission was and that she was going to have this child, she knew she was a virgin, she has this child, she's told things that make absolutely no sense to her at the time. They wouldn't become clear until much later when Jesus was crucified and her heart was pierced and she'd consider what was spoken so long ago before that baby was even born. But there were many things that no doubt his family and those around him would, would hear him say or things spoken about him, and it just didn't connect. They didn't get it. They didn't believe. They didn't understand. But in time, they would. We know that Jesus had at least four brothers. The four brothers are mentioned in the Bible. In Mark and Matthew, we have the names of the brothers. Mark tells us that there were also sisters, so that we know that Jesus had at least four brothers and at least two sisters, so uh, more than one, and we don't have their names given. Now, again, coming from a Roman Catholic, I haven't been a Roman Catholic for a long time, but from a Roman Catholic background, you read the scriptures, and all of a sudden there's all these revelations, because you're not being taught what the Bible teaches, Roman Catholicism, Orthodox, you know, belief. They say that the brothers of Jesus were um, actually not his brothers, but his cousins. Oh, that's interesting. And others will say, no, no, no. The brothers and the sisters were from Joseph's previous marriage. So I want you to kind of think of this, you know, as you read through the scriptures. Can you picture... Mary, she's full with child. She's a young maiden. Isaiah tells us this, and of course we see this in the gospel accounts. Some suggest that she might have been as young as 15 years of age. They make their way to Bethlehem because of the census. They have at least six children in tow. They're all crammed in the stable. I mean, you know, things just don't seem to add up when you read the biblical account. You know what we do know? We do know that the brothers of Jesus, and I would assume the sisters included, believed in Jesus after the resurrection. You say, how do we know that? Because of where we see them. We see Jesus' brothers in the upper room. Remember the upper room? 
120 waiting for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit coming upon them. They were there. The brothers were up with mom up in the uh, upper room waiting for the promise of the Father. So anyway, we're told that Jesus walked in Galilee. Now, guys, you got to kind of keep the flow of what's happening here. You know, a few times we've gone back, we've looked at some of the other gospel accounts when it's beneficial so that we might get some insight on what John was saying, maybe some clarity. But we need to understand that John's gospel is unique. John is specifically, he's taking us on a journey. He's telling us different things. And he keeps coming back to that. And if we're not paying attention, we move from chapter to chapter and we just think that we're dealing with something completely new now. But that's not the case. I'll show you what I mean in a moment. It says in verse 1, because the Jews sought to kill him. So we need to ask the question, why would the Jews seek to kill him? And we know the answer. Do you know why we know the answer? Because we studied chapter 5 of John. In John chapter 5, Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. That's why they wanted to kill him. Where's that pool? In Judea. Where's Jesus now? In Galilee. In John chapter 5, verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Two verses later, in chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So it says that he did not want to walk in Judea. Guys, this had nothing to do with courage. This had to do with the Father's timing. Follow this, because it's really important. If if we're not following this carefully, we'll, we'll come to conclusions that are really false conclusions. For example, if you are not paying attention, you'll come to the conclusion that Jesus lied. He lied to his brothers and then went up to the, to the you know, temple anyway. And of course, Jesus was not lying. In fact, it's in our text. He says, he says, for my time has not yet fully come. It will come. It has not yet fully come. Jesus was not <laughs> living by the agenda of any man of any woman, remember? I mean, and guys, there's a pattern here. Where do, where do we see uh, Jesus in the very beginning of John's gospel? We see him at a wedding. And we see his mother saying, they ran out of wine. And remember what he said? Woman, what does this have to do with me? I'd never call my, wife, my mother woman. She would have twisted my ear or something. But anyway, it was a proper, it was a respectful way of saying things, not the way we might use it today. He was not afraid. He was living according to the Father's agenda. My hour has not yet come. Again, is one of the themes that runs through the Gospel of John. Six times we see this phrase. We see it in chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 17. My time has not yet. We're told in the text that it was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. The Jewish families then, and they still do today, those who are 
you know, Orthodox, those who believe in the Torah, the law, they still will recognize and remember and build booths, you know, Jewish communities in, in the States here in places like New York or, of course, in Israel. They'll build these booths and they'll remember, they'll reflect upon the time that their forefathers lived in these temporary dwellings when they left their Egyptian captivity, wandering in the wilderness there for 40 years. And so it was the Feast of Booths. And we know something about the Feast of Booths. We know that it was a feast that lasted for eight days. We know that the eighth day was the great day. It was, the, it was kind of building, building, building each day. And then the last day, the great day of the feast, was a special day. We know that from Numbers chapter 29, verse 35. On the eighth day, you shall have a sacred assembly. I point this out simply so that I might build your interest in reading ahead to verse 37. We're going to come back to this when we get to verse 37, because on the great day of the feast, Jesus did something very special. So it says, his brothers, therefore, said to him, he has brothers, they seem to be taunting him. In fact, you wonder, were they aware of what had just happened? I'm referring to what we saw last week, John chapter 6, verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Were they, were they taunting him? Were they rubbing it in? Were they, I mean, you could almost hear it as you read the text. If you do these things, we're not quite sure what you're up to, Jesus. I can't help but think of Joseph. You know, in the Bible, guys, we have many types of Christ throughout the page. This is why it says, you know, he's written of me in the volume of the book. We see so many different types. I think of Joseph, Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob. You know, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he singled out. By the way, parents, don't ever do that to your kids. Don't, don't give one of your kids a coat of many colors, <laughs> not the others, because it might breed some bitterness. But, but of course, God gave him some dreams concerning not only his future, but their future. Remember that? And because of jealousy, because they did not believe that God had really given them, given their brother dreams, they, they were jealous of him, they hated him, and sadly, they wanted him dead. And uh, rather than, you know, killing him, they decide to sell him into slavery, and of course, all of this played into their, their future. But Jesus, his brothers don't believe. They say to him in verse 4, for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known. The New Living Translation, and I only read from that one when it could be helpful to bring maybe some clarity. Let me read the same verse to you out of the New Living Translation. It says, quote, you can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such thing, such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. You know, Jesus, um, you're hanging out here in Galilee. Nothing's happening in Galilee. The feast is happening at the temple. The multitudes are going there for the feast. If you want to, you know, gain 
those that you have lost back. If you want to gain the multitudes back, you need to go up and pull a rabbit out of your head or something. It's amazing how humans, we, we, you know, we, we just... We don't get it. Even those of us who have placed our faith in the Lord, many times we just don't get it. We don't understand that God has an agenda that's far greater than any of our agenda. From their perspective, it was, um, Jesus, you want to be famous, don't you? They had no idea that Jesus had no ambition to be popular whatsoever. He was on a mission. It was a redemption mission. And they had no idea and could you imagine being Jesus in his incarnation? You know, you're living, you're moving, you're teaching, the things that you do, all of these things are fulfilling, you know, scripture and, and pointing to the fact that you are the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, and the majority of people completely miss it. They misunderstand you, they accuse you of evil, I mean, they accuse Jesus of having a demon. We'll see that next week. I mean, just the accusations that were brought against Jesus. Oh, he's a wine-bibber. He's a friend of sinners. You know, all these accusations, and they had no idea of the mission. They had no idea of the purpose in which Jesus came. His brothers did not believe in him, which tells me that nearness to Jesus is not enough to guarantee faith. And this is something that we all need to heed. I was thinking, there's someone that I talk to, not on a regular basis, from time to time, and uh, he, um, whenever he comes to talk to me, and I know that it's this way because he's in close proximity of, of, of us, and whenever he comes to talk to me, he puts on his cross, a wooden cross. And I just think, I don't understand the symbol. I, I don't understand, you know, I'm going to the church. I'm going to go ask for a favor, so I put on my wooden cross. I see him a lot of times around town. He's not wearing that wooden cross. But he comes to talk to me, puts on that, that, that symbol. So what's your point, Dan? My point is this, that our faith needs to be genuine. I'm not saying his faith isn't genuine, but I'm just saying that that if our faith is for show, if it's something that we do, but it's not genuine, oh, woe to us. There are many people who go to churches, they attend churches. I, I don't doubt the first church that we uh, attended when I became a Christian. Tracy and I, we were a little Bible church and wonderful people there. And it was a church where the council or the board of directors, they pretty much ran the church. And so they would hire the pastor and fire the pastor and that type of thing. And so they were really the men in charge. And uh, they were men of uh, means. So, you know, they owned businesses and they, they were, uh, I would say, a little more well off than the regular Folks in the church, you say, why are you being so critical, Dan? Because it was years later that one of the guys that busted my chops the most, he would always confront me and say things like, you know, Dan, if you want to be right with God, you need to cut off that long hair. That it came out that he had been 
sexually abusing his sons. And now his sons are adults living on the same mountain that dad lived on, except now they have children. And they begin to rise up and say, this isn't going to happen to our kids. And you, here you have someone that appears to be a pillar in the church, and yet he was perverse. He was doing horrible things. Who could imagine? You say, well, Dan, that's an extreme example. It is an extreme example. I know it is. But I think of people who attend churches that might teach in Sunday school. They might be involved in some ministry of the church. And yet, um, they're not born again. They don't have a genuine faith in the Lord. It's, it's, it's a facade. And I think of how dangerous that is. You know, just being near other believers doesn't necessarily guarantee that you have faith. Each person, isn't it wonderful? I mean, the, the body of Christ is, is just that. It's pictured as a body. Uh, years ago, I was taking a fellow out to pick up trash. I don't know why he came to me, but he said, I need uh, supervision. He was some sort of court-appointed thing. He needed to pick up trash. Um, but he didn't want me to stay there, which I'm glad. I didn't want to just hang out all day, you know. But he said, you could drop me off, and then you could pick me up. And I took him out to a place out of town where there was just all this garbage I mean, so much garbage. I couldn't believe all the garbage out there. And I remember we would have these conversations, you know, and, and he'd say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I said, oh, great. You know, where do you fellowship? I don't go to church. I said, you don't? Why not? He says, I am the church. And I said, you're not the church. He says, that's what the Bible says. I said, that's not what the Bible says. The church is the ecclesia. The individual is not the church. The individual is not the body of Christ. We are members of the ecclesia. We are members of the body of Christ. But on our own, we're not the church. It's when we're together. So you see that aspect and you say, yeah, that's beautiful, that togetherness, you know. But we know that when it comes to faith, it's an individual faith. Each one of us needs to individually place our faith in Christ, repent of our sins, turn to the Lord, seek the Lord. I mean, you know, my wife, the first year of marriage, you know, I'm sure it was so difficult for her being married to a non-believer. But she could not save me. I wasn't saved because I lived with her. I had to come to faith in Christ. And so we need to be careful of that. We need to be careful that we're not self-deceived. We need to be careful that we're not, you know, just doing things. And so we assume that everything's okay. I'm a child of God. Because there's that day of reckoning, you know, when uh, the Lord either calls us home through death or through the rapture of the church. So not believing. Isn't that a theme that runs through John's gospel as well? It's a sad theme that seems to run through the pages of John's gospel account. Not believing, not believing. Not, now, there's believing as well. That's the positive side. But there's a lot of not believing that we see in John's gospel account. By the way, did you know that Jesus, the unbelief of Jesus' brothers was prophesied in the Bible? Guys, faith comes by hearing 
and hearing by the word of God. It's not magical, it's practical. As we read the Bible, we see how these links in the chain come together. Let me read the verse to you. Psalm 69, verse 8. I have become a stranger to my brothers, listen, and an alien to my mother's children. Going right back. Those children, those four boys, those two or more daughters, Mary didn't continue to be a perpetual virgin. She had sexual relations with her husband as any wife would have, and the Lord blessed them with other children. Jesus being the firstborn, of course, and these other children were a blessing to the family. You say, how do you get that out of that verse? Because this is Old Testament. And if it's Old Testament, there would be reference to my father's children. Not my mother's children. But here we see reference to my mother's children. My time has not yet come. Jesus. Look what he says, verse 6. I've been building for this. I'm, I'm trying not to be as heavy as I was at the last service. But I'll tell you, there's things that are, are heavy in this world that we live in. Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is already always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Say, Jesus, were you paranoid? Always thinking the people hate you? No. Jesus knew. You know, in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, In him was, and the him is Jesus, of course, in him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. This is reality. This is what the Gospels declare, guys. Jesus, God in the flesh, came to the earth. He lived among humanity. He came to the lost sheep of Israel. He's fulfilling Bible prophecy. He rebukes them when he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Why? Because they should have known that he would make his triumphal entry on that day. Based upon the scriptures. Based upon Bible prophecy. You see, Jesus, he is the light. And he comes to this dark world, and I think, Lord, if it was dark back then, what is it today? What is it today? The world, it has its religion. Today, it has its religion. I think it's always had its religion. But today, we could truly say that the, the religion of the world today is evolution and worship of the world. Don't get caught up, Christian, in this whole environmental thing. I was talking to one of the sisters uh, after the first service, and she said, I was reading this book about Hitler, and um, I keep telling my husband to read it. There's so many similarities to what we saw then to what we're seeing now. And I said, exactly. I said, did you know that Hitler was an environmentalist? And she goes, exactly, that's what I saw. I, I couldn't believe that. I didn't know that about Hitler. And we're seeing the same patterns. It's like the devil, he doesn't have a, a lot of tricks in his head. <laughs> you know, he just keeps pulling out the same old ones because he knows that eventually they'll work. 
the world, it has its own faith. It might have a faith that one day all genuine disciples of Jesus will be gone. Hey, I'm willing to fulfill that any time, Lord. And its own programs. What's his program? We're coming for your children. You know, guys, this is disturbing. I was saying to the first service that sometimes there's this fatigue. It's not a weariness because, you know, I'm working too hard or not getting enough sleep, but it's this fatigue of, of just how perverse our world has become. I mean, we live in, we live on Whidbey Island. I love Whidbey Island. Tracy and I were talking the other day. I said, I love Whidbey Island. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else but Whidbey Island. Um, it's not that I love Washington State, per se, but I love Whidbey Island. I, we just kind of feel somewhat sheltered, and it's just a great little place. But you look at our little communities on Whidbey Island. We know where Langley stands. We know where Coopville stands. We know where Oak Harbor stands. I think it's interesting that every group in our town, in Oak Harbor, that has a service to children, they tell us by their flags and their symbols and their sculptures where they stand. And, and to me, it would be like, you know, parents, don't ever send your children to, because there's an agenda. They're telling us this is our agenda. The world has its own values, which aren't values at all. And Jesus says that he testifies of its work that they are evil. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 20, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And this is where we are today. It is sad to see what's happening in the world. And there's been a rapid change that's taken place in a very short period of time. I think that all of these things were, were obviously always happening, but, but they've just kind of come out. And I think of the world, if the Lord tarries from our perspective, the Lord's right on time, but I'm just saying that from a human perspective, the, using the word tarry. But if the Lord tarries, I wonder what kind of world my grandchildren will live in. That frightens me. I know that frightens their parents as well. And, and you just look at the perversion of the world that we live in. I, I think, you know, I grew up in the 70s, and I think there was a lot of bizarre things in the late 60s and 70s. But I'll tell you what, man, it seemed like leave it to beaver compared to nowadays. Or, you know, some of those old black and white shows, you know, compared to, to, to our culture today. You say, Dan, we don't want to hear about this. Well, we need to hear about it because it's infiltrating the church. And there are so many Christians, professing Christians, that just, they lap up the lies like a dog drinking water, you know. It's like, oh, we just got to love, we got to love. And you guys that have been here for any amount of time, have I ever spoke of hating anyone? I, I think that, 
that there's this confusion in the world today on so many different levels. But there's this strange confusion within churches today Churches that are more concerned about the pastor's popularity or the church's popularity than they are the word of God. You know, again, Jesus' brothers, you need to go up to Judea. Hey, if you want to be popular, you got to go where it's happening. And they, they had no clue that Jesus could care less about being popular. In fact, when you read through the gospel accounts, it's apparent that Jesus could care less about what people thought of him. He was on an agenda, a mission of redemption so that sinners could be saved. And praise God that we've come to faith in Christ and we've received, you know, that salvation. I am so grateful for that. But, but we look around us and there are sinners all around us, aren't there? And there's this strange, bizarre mentality within Christianity today that says we win them by, by loving them. And I would say, amen. But what do you mean by loving them? And that's where it breaks down. We love them by, by accepting them as they are, by affirming them. It's so twisted, and young people, you need to hear this, because I'll tell you, you're on the front lines, maybe more than your parents are. The parent that screams out, get out of the street! Abusive, loving, get out of the street. Put that down. I think it's amazing. You know, during the 70s, the sexual revolution. Love the one you're with, Stephen Stills would sing. If it feels good, do it. I don't remember any pride in fornication or adultery, or pornography. I don't remember any pride in drug abuse or alcoholism. I don't remember pride in any area of sin, any other area of sin than what we're seeing today. There's an agenda. And I know that even as I'm speaking in this little church today, I don't doubt that there will be someone, if not sitting in the building here or downstairs or, or will listen to it online, that will cringe as I'm saying this because it seems so foreign to them. And there lies the problem. It's not foreign. If you're a true believer, it's not foreign if you're a man or woman of the world, a word, excuse me, not the world, not the world. The world is, yeah, we're dealing with the world, but I'll come back to the world in a second. The word. 
Because you know what, guys? We look at what's happening, and as, as disturbing as it is, we, we look at Romans chapter 1, and we, and we say, the Bible believer says, the judgment has begun. See, I, I believe in the rapture of the church. I believe in a seven-year tribulation. I believe in a literal second coming. I believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ. I believe in a new heaven and a new earth. I, I believe in all these things that the Bible teaches. But I also believe that judgment has already begun. It's not the tribulation judgment, but it's the judgment of being given over. And you guys know that there are places, I used to say, North of the border. I don't say that anymore. There are places in our own country now, there are states in our own country now that are making Bible illegal if it makes people feel uncomfortable. Oh gosh, I would be in prison many times over <laughs> for making people feel uncomfortable. I think I've done that for 35 years, making people feel uncomfortable, not deliberately, but it's just the word of God. Sometimes it, it's uncomfortable to hear these things, but we need to understand the days in which we're living. So what's your point? And my point is this. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 25, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. See, this is one of those promises that comes directly from Jesus that we would never want to claim. <laughs> I claim that promise, you know. But it's a promise. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And guys, it comes down to this. Are we going to stand upon the word of God? Do you guys get troubled? I mean, every Saturday, it seems like, you know, we down at the intersection down here, people erect their flags, you know, we have the Black Lives Matter. We have all the colorful flags. We have the pro-choice, which is really pro-abortion. And, and um, you know, we, we, we have that up. Every now and again, we have uh, a, a lady and a man, and they hold up these little signs that are really small, and it says, believe in Jesus. But, but you know, we, we see the, the other kind of on a regular basis. Uh, the intersection down in Coopville, the same thing. They'd line up on every corner, you know, of the intersection. And a few weeks ago, I was driving by. There were some women out there, mid, middle-aged women. They're dancing as they're holding their signs. And I'm thinking, Lord, what has happened to this perverse world? Because it's like, you know, we have the right to kill, you know, the fetus in the womb. You say, it's none of your business. And, then what we're, and, and see, people are shutting their mouths because they, they believe, they, you know, any pushback is like, oh, okay, I don't want to make anyone angry. No, it's a baby. Based on what? Based on scripture. We live in a twisted world of people that need to be straightened out. And the only way they're going to be straightened out is the way we were straightened out. And that's through faith in Jesus Christ. When a man, when a woman, when a young person truly places their faith in Christ, their thinking changes. It doesn't happen overnight. But it changes. 
we begin to value the things that God values. We, need, we, we are able to see things, you know, in a better way, not completely, you know, perfectly, of course, the way God sees things. We look at our world. If we simply hate people and say, oh, I wish judgment would fall, you know. Well, judgment is falling. They're being given over. So what's our part? Pray, pray, pray. Don't be one of those professing Christians who say, I've got all my gay friends and we just get along fine and I never offend them and they don't offend me. It's because you're of the world. If you are of Christ, if you are not of the world, they would find offense with you. Even when you tell them, I love you. I want you to repent. I want you to come to faith in Christ. Professing Christians are affirming people into hell. And we can't do that. You know, The world is perishing. People are perishing. Thank the Lord for the people that have, you know, come to faith in Christ and come out of a, a drug life or alcoholic life or fornicator, adulterer, thief or whatever, you know, uh, lifestyle. Thank, thank you, Lord, for that. But I'm telling you, the voices that are affirming are stronger than the voices of truth, the voices of love. I, I've mentioned this, this a number of times, and I'm gonna close with this. In fact, worship team, come on up so you put pressure on me to stop. <laughs> but, um, you know, we had a, a family friend and she was a, she is a lesbian, and uh, she would kind of show up at the church every now and again, and um, and I had we hadn't seen her for a while. It wasn't like she was a regular attendee of the church, but she would show up. My kids knew her from school or someplace, and she showed up one Sunday. I remember it was winter because it was dark outside first service. And uh, I had just started Romans like the week before, and we're in Romans chapter one. And she walked in and sat over on the side, and I looked at her and nodded, hello, you know, and she said hello. And I said, well, here we go, Lord. <laughs> and I just taught the scriptures, and, and I said, you know, this is God's, Judgment, giving a person over to unnatural affections. And, um, and talked about, you know, the better way, the plan that God has for humanity, that God never designed 
humanity, you know, to live the way so many people do. And after the service, I, I went up to her and I said, well, did you feel uncomfortable today, you know? And, and she said, oh, Pastor Dan, I wouldn't expect anything less from you. That's where you were today. And I said, yeah. I said, I guess if you walked in and I decided to target preach, you know, then it's a different thing, you know, which I have target preached before. But, um, you know, one time, I'm off track now, but one time, a friend of mine, a buddy that I knew um, when we lived in Poway, he showed up here on a Sunday. And uh, he came walking up the stairs. He had real long hair and this big bushy beard and this ball cap on. And um, I see him, and he gets out of a Jeep, and he comes walking up the steps. And I happen to be standing back there. And so I didn't recognize him. So I said, good morning, welcome. And he walked up, and he said, oh, Danny. And he kissed me on the cheek. And I thought, whoa, you know. And then I kind of looked back, and I said, oh, Mike. And it was this my friend, Mike, Mike Saylor, you know. And um, I target preached that. <laughs> I, I, changed my, I changed my whole message. I went to John 3, and I preached the importance of being baptized or being born again, you know. So there's a reason, there's a purpose to, you know, these target preaching sometimes. But we don't just target preach, you know, to make people feel uncomfortable or to feel guilty. But we need to be people who stand upon the truth of God's word. We don't hate people. We love people. And sometimes loving people, you say, you got to get off the track because the train's going to hit you. Judgment is coming. We don't affirm people in their sin. I want you to think of it. We never affirm people in any other sin, do we? The world tries to. But could you imagine, you know, like if you had a friend that was a klepto, you know, brother, man, you just see it, and you got to have it, and that's how God made you. <laughs> Would you stand with me? Lord, we pray that if there's any here, and I'm sorry for the rambling at the end there, but if there's any here, Lord, that have not placed their faith in you, that they would do so, Lord. We know that, Lord, we live in a time where there's a great confusion. There's a lot of people that are confused. There's an agenda, and our heart goes out to people, especially young people, Lord, that are just being caught up in the fervor of, of this lie. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would rescue them. We know that you don't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And we know, Lord, that, that our popularity whether or not the world loves us or even likes us, doesn't matter. What matters is that the truth of your gospel gets out. So would you please lead us by your spirit to share the love and hope and salvation that comes through you, Lord, to all people, not targeting one group, but not excluding one group either. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name.